Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of the Third Impact Anime Podcast, and I really hope you're not lactose intolerant for this episode, because we're talking about Night on the Galactic Railroad. Uh, that reference will become clear in time, but my name is Austin, and I am your host for this episode, and I am joined by another wonderful co-host, Bill. Please say hello to the <laughs> fine folks at home. Hello, as I try and wrangle these cats into the train car we gotta get moving it's a lot easier than you would think considering how they just kind of appear (laughs) on the train car but we'll we will get to that soon enough but you know before we get into talking about you know our topic proper uh we did want to do like a bit of a seasonal and uh, news roundup because there's been a lot of things happening in the world of of anime recently including a new season with some pretty standout uh shows that we've been uh checking out uh bill you are definitely the person that watches seasonal anime more so than myself so do you want to kick us off by talking about uh some of these seasonal shows that you've been checking out sure um i would say the kind of the top dog of the season is spy family I couldn't I agree more. Everyone is watching it, and I because uh, the manga. I was on the Shonen Jump app and got a lot of people hyped, and um, I think this is an excellent uh, show. I've I've never read the manga. I think it's a great blend of action and comedy, and they nailed the characters down. And the dub is that is being produced is excellent. I'm mm-hmm. I'm usually not a dub person, um, but I think they have it nailed down where it's so good. Where I'm watching Spy Family twice when it initially comes out, and then when the dub episode comes out, and that's very rare for me to do. Yeah, I'm doing the same thing. I mean, it's pretty rare for me <laughs> to watch anything that comes out seasonally anyway, but I had read a bit of the manga before, uh, like sometime last year, and I'm... I'm probably like a volume and a half ahead of where the anime is right now. So I was going into this already knowing something about the source material, but the adaptation is wonderful and really funny and really, really nails the pacing of the jokes and the characterizations mm-hmm. of the, of our three main leads specifically, most notably Anya, like the way that they translated her goofiness from the manga to the anime it's just like one-to-one it's it's really perfect and i'm doing i'm actually doing the same thing bill like i just watched the first episode of the dub like two days ago and it is very good yeah it is it is excellent and i if you're gonna at least watch one show for the season i would definitely go with spy family but uh, it's probably an anime of the year contender for sure like it'll be it'll be high up on people's end of the year lists definitely oh yeah i imagine it'll probably do a good clean sweep of the Crunchyroll awards whenever Mm -hmm. that rolls around what will be interesting is that because it's not a like a big shonen property like how popular is this series really going to get like i think it has really good cross demographic appeal where it can appeal to like old people, young people, teens, kids, etc. and 
and also like non-anime fans like it has that factor going into it as well but i wonder if it's really going to get the visibility or the push into like mainstream pop culture that like demon slayer and jujutsu kaisen have because it's not like a shonen action battle series so it'll be interesting to see if it like if it gets that popular or if it's just going to be something that's like really really highly acclaimed and popular within anime spaces i think it'll get at least very popular within anime spaces i'm already seeing on twitter just a huge amount of spy family fan art same which that's all that's a good sign and because this is kind of a western setting show mm-hmm. it's much more approachable at least to a western audience and because of that cosplay for this show will probably be pretty easy to do mm-hmm. which that's also another sign of people really are into the show so what else are you checking out this season because i'm watching spy family and i just watched the first episode of your boy kong ming which is really good but I guess we can talk about that last. What other what other notable things are you checking out? Um, Birdie Wing, which is an insane golf show. <laughs> it's like, what if we combined Yakuza with golf? That sounds amazing. It is amazing. Like, uh, in the latest episode as of this recording, our main lead had to fight basically a snake-like lady... <laughs> in a mafia golf uh exhibition match what <laughs> yes and where they where they were able to terraform and make a golf course <laughs> in like five to ten minutes terraform golf terraform a golf course amazing Just instantly make it which was amazing <laughs> <laughs> the show is just kind of it's it's grounded in some ways and really wacky in other ways Mm. and that's what makes it fun Mm -hmm. and i'm really interested to see kind of where it goes because right now it's between this main uh our main protagonist basically is a is a golf savant that is playing in the underground to make money and then she finally met a rival who is in the more professional scene and so it's kind of this back and forth and their relationship between the two of them Mm. so on top of the kind of the wacky hijinks so that like classic sports (laughs) anime rivalry going on yep okay cool uh Um, yeah anything else um i think a lot of the other stuff that i'm watching are sequels to stuff like love is war and comey can't communicate so I'll save that for when we do a, probably a spring a, a spring episode. I imagine that's going to happen. Yeah. Because for some reason, just the spring season always brings up the good stuff. Yeah, I don't um, know. It's just, you know, spring flowers are <coughs> blooming. Anime is blooming. I don't know. Maybe there's a connection. Maybe. But let's, let's get to um, the show that we're both, or at least you started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, boy, coming. Oh, um, yes. It's so much fun. Like, uh, I just watched the first episode, and basically the central conceit is that it's a reverse isekai where this uh, ancient Chinese tactician from the Three Kingdoms era dies in his in 
real life and then is reborn in modern day uh, Shibuya, Japan. And he shows up and is wandering around Shibuya and finds himself in like an EDM club where there's this like singer that he's like, oh my gosh, she's such an amazing singer. And then sort of they meet together and form a rapport. And he like, I mean, I've only seen the first episode, but he like becomes her like her coach like her tactician i guess ba- like basically uses his basically she's he's become like her manager uh-huh her manager slash grand strategist but he but she already had a manager or Did is that she... other guy not her manager that other guy seems more like a supportive role to okay. me where he's he's helping more with the equipment i guess and more of the technical side of things mm-hmm. but in terms of like how they go about things it seems like Komeng is kind of leading the charge mm-hmm. um i can't wait to get to the later episodes because he starts to use like three kingdoms grand strategy mm-hmm. in the, the later episodes because i <laughs> that, that just blew my blues blows my mind um to see what he does and how everyone just kind of accepts him (laughs) and they're just like oh okay you're a little weird but whatever (laughs) like he shows up on halloween night and he thinks he's gone to hell because like everyone's dressed in costumes Mm -hmm. and there there's like some people that come up and they're just like oh my gosh you're dressed up as the ancient chinese tactician kong ming nice costume man you're really in character (laughs) i thought that was so so funny yeah uh while we're talking about combing i also would like to highlight that it's it is exclusively on high dive uh high dive is a secretly or not so secret a good service that has some good quirky shows on there Mm -hmm. so uh if 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 uh if you want to check it out and subscribe to high dive high dive isn't isn't that expensive um, it has this little unknown show called lupon the third part six and they're getting like part two on like later this month in may so they must have um started working closely with tms so they could get all this stuff together yeah it looks to be that way it'll mm-hmm. it, it'll be interesting to see if they will also try and reach out to get some of the tv specials because some of those are on retro crush yeah um i do yeah i wonder because because i mean there's two different avenues that they could be getting these and i don't really know for sure it's that either they're talking to discotech and getting the licenses from them or they're getting them from tms directly but you would think if it was discotech they would have more on there already because there's a ton on retro crush um it's primarily through tms okay Discotech has a few things they have the rights to streaming, but from what I've heard, TMS is the one that handles all the digital and streaming rights. Well, at the very least, it makes Lupin more available, and I guess it doesn't really matter how. All the parts are available also on Crunchyroll, except for Part 6. Mm-hmm. And I believe, I believe Part 2 is on retro crush and also part one 
Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I like well, I like um, TMS's strategy with Lupin, where they're just like make it available to as many places as we can. Right, right. Well, it's, since you alluded to High Dive and uh, broadly the streaming wars, uh, do you want to talk about the really, really big, earth-shattering anime industry uh, sort of news slash event that happened? since the last time we came to you to talk about news yeah um so sony who owns funimation bought crunchyroll (gasps) now (laughs) i know basically they are now officially the biggest player in the anime space uh not just here in the united states but globally because they uh, renamed all their other uh, distributors in Australia, France, Europe, and the UK into Crunchyroll, basically retiring the local names like Mad Men uh, and uh, a Walkman, I think was the Frenchman name, and uh, for the Funimation name. And Funimation, the, yeah. And the Funimation name to now everything is under the Crunchyroll name. It's all crunchy now. All of it. Yes. The only uh, thing that they are leaving for now is Aniplex. And I would imagine the reason for that is that Aniplex is bigger than just anime streaming. And it has a much stronger foothold in um, in Japan as a brand. And it makes the money even here in the United States because there are yes. fans willing to pay $100 for the first season of love is war so (laughs) yeah or or like a hundred dollars for the first four episodes of something yeah so they're making their money but it's kind of funny how this came about because initially crunchyroll was owned by warner warner at&t and then at&t said we have a 50 billion dollar debt wait that's what we got by doing this merger this sucks (laughs) we need to get some of this debt off the books and so they they immediately tried to sell uh crunchyroll to any interested party Uh, and the only one that kind of was willing to take the bite was sony they paid about 1.5 billion dollars to get crunchyroll so now it's been about a year because that's how long these mergers and all the paperwork to get through. Uh, we're now seeing uh, Funimation titles get onto Crunchyroll. Mm-hmm. Uh, like as of this recording, they just announced uh, that there's going to be a lot of other uh, famous Funimation titles that are going to finally get onto Crunchyroll, like Trigun and Space Dandy and more recent recent shows that were licensed like Sunny Boy and Decadance mm-hmm. are going to get on to Crunchyroll this month. Um, I think there's two ways you can look about it. I think from a consumer perspective, um, consumers are always going to love convenience because that's one less service they're having to pay. Um, and with more things centralized onto one service that thing that makes things a bit easier because at this point it's Crunchyroll, high dive and occasionally netflix at this point 
but like the gulf at this point between the sheer amount of content that is present on like any one streaming service like but i do think it's interesting that like at this point crunchyroll even with netflix and high dive included will like completely eclipse both of them in the sheer amount of like minutes of anime that they have on their streaming service because like i mean netflix i think is probably still going to be invested in anime for for a long time because they've they've really they've they've done a uh a pretty consistent job at um getting high profile exclusives every season more or less and a lot of their stuff does tend to do really well so they will probably continue to be a major player but they don't get the volume that Crunchyroll does in any given season and it seems like increasingly so High Dive kind of gets the stuff that's left over like the stuff that Crunchyroll doesn't really seem to be interested in because Mm -hmm. I can't imagine that you know, even with High Dive now being owned by AMC Networks, I can't imagine they're a wash in cash the way that, like, a Sony-owned Crunchyroll is. So No, um, I think they're going to be more strategic with what they go for. Yeah. Because AMC is doing a lot of other businesses. Um, like, they run Shudder. They also have their own AMC streaming service that they're running. Mm-hmm. And so, unlike Sony, that is like, uh, yeah, we own certain studios, and we also, our main focus is anime. Mm -hmm. They're going to uh, have the money to basically dictate what they want. Mm -hmm. And with one less player in the space, that also decreases the uh, money they have to pay up front for licensing, because you're not going to have as many bidders going for shows right right so you know that's kind of the state of things and um i i mean there's a lot of like you you outlined some of the consumer level like pros that this might bring but of course as we see time and time again part of the reality of mergers is always layoffs and um of course no guarantee that any of this you know any of any of the fact that sony is like a multi-trillion dollar worldwide corporation like there's no guarantee that that they're going to sort of invest at the ground level by paying translators higher rates or paying voice actors union wages which there's been a lot of news recently about about those particular topics so it's one of those things where, you know, corporate consolidation has, you know, some some good things about it, but a, a lot of negatives that I, don't necessarily fix themselves. The negatives outweigh the positives because I think yeah. convenience is a monkey's paw where, yeah, it's great for you, but it's not great for the people working there because exactly they're the only game in town and... Crunchyroll will primarily be as cheap as they can. Like, uh, there was a recent example of the Shinjutsu Kaisen prequel movie mm-hmm. where I think that one of the actors said they were paid like $500 for mm-hmm. their work. And that movie did gangbusters here in the United States in terms of money. 
and with no not, with no guarantee that they get residuals for that because there's no real system in place currently in most contracts for you to get royal uh, is it residuals or royalties you know like um well that's which, common in just dub acting just voice yeah. acting in general is that these voice actors are paid for their time but they don't get residuals from their work right that's even common in western la western american cartoons mm-hmm. um but uh yeah and then also just translators are not going to get paid as well and like there's a history of control not paying their translators a lot of money mm-hmm. and so there's there's and because they're the only real game in town um it's like well what are you gonna do are you gonna go uh find an, uh, somewhere else to work probably not and a lot of these translators are kind of doing it as a side gig yeah it's like they're not really able to you know make a full-time job out of what could easily be a full-time job if the if the people at the top were more willing to um sort of invest in the bottom invest in their workforce exactly and treat their workforce better i think and i'm hoping with more open conversations that we've seen online about uh dub actors not getting um a lot of money especially in anime and uh how poorly translators are treated Mm -hmm. um that this either leads to unionization Mm-hmm. Or this leads to more uh, vocal support from fans of, hey, pay your people. Right, right. Uh, and this this same exact principle also extends to, like, the actual animators in Japan. Because for them, it's it's not too dissimilar of a situation. Like, animators are often highly underpaid. And uh, a lot of the profits from these things don't really go back to the peep, to the, to the workforce. It goes to the you know, executives at the companies. And uh, that's definitely something that can change if unionization, both in Japan and here in the U.S., can catch on in a major way. And it it seems like if the if sort of the movements in the tech industry and the service industry as of the past, like, year or so uh, are any indication of the future, um, it, it is very possible that we will see more more growth in that direction. But you just hate that it has to come to that, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, one negative I can see from the consumer side is Crunchyroll now dictates what's most likely going to get licensed more often Mm -hmm. than not because they're the only ones that really have the big pockets and you're going to get your franchises like One Piece and stuff from Shonen Jump and uh, stuff like Demon Slayer, but there's always like a quirky show that kind of finds an audience so something from like last year would be like odd taxi i don't know if in this current environment odd taxi would get licensed they might be they might feel that the show's too weird it's not going to find an audience it's not worth the money to uh get it translated and for us to pay for it Mm -hmm. and there's no like uh with the consolidation it limits competition so they are less sort of uh energized to want to go for things that might be sleeper hits because they're just thinking oh well 
we're not really competing against anyone but ourselves so let's just get the big boys and that'll be that yeah and uh just it's a uh, very tight race i think people in the industry like sean kleckner and Runt, who is the owner and runs right stuff has basically said like i wouldn't want to start an anime company now <laughs> no. there's there's too many it's too expensive and there's too many players in the space mm-hmm. with big pockets like unless you have a niche like uh g kids slash shout factory primarily does movies or discotech that does primarily classic or retro titles that have a nostalgic fan base or robert woodhead that does like one thing a year but does it really well (laughs) yes (laughs) all right well is there any other news items you wanted to talk about before we get into the episode proper uh not that i can think of i think i'm ready to board the train great well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about 1985's Night on the Galactic Railroad. Choo-choo! back and we're talking about the 1985 film night on the galactic railroad created by studio group tack and directed by gisaburo sugi uh so bill you were the one that suggested that we talk about this sad cat train movie so uh what drew you to wanting to talk about this film specifically um two reasons one was primarily you do a great panel about anime movies you should watch and i well, i've heard you. you i've heard you talk about it a number of times and uh so i've wanted to check it out for that reason and then it's another film in the discotech catalog that i've wanted to check out discotech always releases kind of interesting uh works and mm-hmm. so when they announce something i'm usually interested in it even if i've never heard of it fair enough i mean i find myself doing that all the time uh whether or not i do it quickly is a different question because i've owned uh uh what is it uh fair than partly piggy for like four years and still haven't watched it um (laughs) but typically yeah when discotech releases something and they have a lot of praise thrown behind it i tend to be pretty interested in it um but this film in particular, I, I think, is very interesting. So I guess we'll talk a little bit about the original source material that it comes from before we talk about the movie itself. So uh, this movie is based on a extremely popular and well-known Japanese children's book called, of course, Night on the Galactic Railroad. Or depending on the translation, it's also uh, Night on the Milky Way 
railway or night train to the stars or fantasy train to the stars because it's had a bunch of different translations over the um the hundred years or so that it's been around because i think it was originally published in the 1930s um it was actually published posthumously by the uh the family of the author kenji miyazawa who passed away pretty early at the age of 37. Uh, he was a, uh, a teacher and a lifelong uh, learner. He was kind of a, a very bookish type of guy who uh, grew up in the Japanese countryside and kind of a lot like Vincent Van Gogh. He wasn't really discovered for his talent and become like uh, world-renowned and beloved until, unfortunately, after he passed away. Um, but he was... Uh, his particular writings were very informed uh, by his readings on science and literature and also his very uh, devout uh, religious beliefs in a, a sect of Buddhism called Nichiren Buddhism, which I could attempt to describe but would probably do a really poor job. So I'm just going to like suggest that you do some reading uh, on your own about Nichiren Buddhism, but one of the big things about that particular sect at the time was that it was a more sort of like socially active sect of Buddhism, um, and there were also a lot of, uh, because this was in like pre-World War II Japan, like leading up to uh, sort of the, uh, the imperial fascist sort of alliance with uh, the Axis powers. This particular branch of Buddhism was like very big on Japanese nationalism, but it's been written about that Miyazawa specifically, even though he was part of this sect, he did not really like, he didn't really vibe well with like the more Japanese nationalism angle of, uh, of what this Buddhist sect was doing at the time. But uh, if you want to learn more about like their specific tenets of their belief system, I'll put a link in the show notes to something that sort of explains it in a little bit more detail. Um, but again, Miyazawa was uh, very influenced by the things that he read about. He was very influenced by um, Western classical music, like uh, uh, like the big popular like European composers and things like that. He was also really interested in learning different languages, including German and Esperanto, which is another interesting, like, hybrid language. It's like a bunch of different European and some African languages all smashed together. And you'll see Esperanto wording show up in the movie a couple times and in some of his other works. Um, but yeah, it's like a classic Japanese children's story. Um, a lot of people compare it like to the little prince um but i actually ended up reading this novel in preparation for this podcast because i wanted to be able to you know kind of compare and contrast sort of what's in the movie versus what's in the book and what they added or what they took away etc and we can definitely talk about that a little bit later but um again it didn't really become famous until after his death uh and the movie was not the first adaptation of this story because there was a manga that had existed in the early 80s but this was like I, I think this was the first film adaptation of Night on the Galactic Railroad mm. um, and again it came out in 1985 by Studio Group Tech, which was a spin-off studio of Mushi Productions which was Osamu Tezuka's anime studio um, and directed by uh, 
Gisaburo Sugi, who he's been around for ages. He worked on the original Astro Boy TV show. He worked on uh, the original Baki the Grappler in the 2000s. He worked. He directed the Street Fighter movie. He worked on the original Dororo, and he's still alive. He's still around, and he directed another Kenji Miyazawa story adaptation in 2012 that we'll also talk about briefly. Um, but Bill, I've talked a lot. Would you like to give the general breakdown of what specifically this story is about as we get into talking about the movie? I'd be happy to. Uh, the story follows a young boy named Giovanni who lives in kind of a vaguely uh, European but also vaguely Japanese town. Uh, he lives there with his sickly mother and his father who we don't see but he's it's alluded to that uh, he is a fisherman out on a long trip. He doesn't have many friends and is picked on on a regular basis, um, but he has one friend uh, named Campanella who uh, he grew up with and had uh, gotten along with. On the night of the big festival in town, a mysterious train uh, whisks him and Campanella away and shows them bizarre and ethereal sights, sounds, and people as they take their journey through the Milky Way. Eventually, Giovanni finds his way back home, and that's basically the movie until we get into spoiler territory. Pretty much. Um, and I think it is worth noting that the original story, since it was published posthumously, and Kenji Miyazawa had rewritten it numerous times it was never actually like finished finished apparently according to what i was reading like the beginning of the story was finished and the ending was finished but like everything in the middle was kind of like so so like he had written some things that had happened and other things he didn't get around to so and i think that that kind of feels act like like you can kind of get that sense whenever you watch the movie i don't know about you bill but it definitely felt like the beginning was pretty solid and the ending was solid but the middle while interesting felt a little bit shaky but i guess we can get into that later um mm -hmm. so i guess let's just start from our general feelings on the movie um i guess yeah i saw it many years ago just because it's something that looked interesting to me like I had heard some uh, older anime fans talk about it and I think I heard specifically uh, the the voice actor that plays Campanella is uh, Crispin Freeman who's a pretty popular anime voice actor or at least he was nowadays he mostly does things that aren't anime but anyway he played uh, Campanella and he was talking about it either at a panel that I watched a video of or on his podcast and he had a lot of really good things to say about it so I thought, hmm, this movie kind of sounds up my alley. It's like a weird, surreal, you know, space exploration. Uh, so, yeah, I got to check this out. So I bought it from the discotheque booth at a convention and watched it and was pretty blown away by it, even though it's very, um, it can be very subtle and downplayed and quiet at times. But I thought it was pretty, pretty striking. And there are definitely some images in this movie that you don't that you really hold on to i think some things that mm. i've uh thought about in um sort of my memories of this movie as the years have gone on but um 
I guess watching it again this time, I still really enjoyed it. But having read the book and watched it a few times, there are definitely some things that I take a bit of issue with. But I still think broadly, it, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good story. But it's like really dour for for a kid's story, that's for sure. Uh, so what yeah. did, what what were you what was your reaction to it, Bill? Uh, broadly I speaking, I guess. I went into this movie mostly cold. Like I have a I I knew about it but i didn't know what it was about um so i went into it completely cold when i watched it for this podcast and um i i'm i'm not a big fan of this movie at least on my first viewing um Mm, i controversy i think this movie is beautiful to look at and there's some beautiful scenery and beautiful set pieces I think you should see this movie uh, still, especially for the visuals. I think this movie visually is stunning, and uh, you should definitely check it out. But it was hard for me to connect with this movie on a narrative level because it's very quiet, where we're, you're kind of left to your own devices where you're just having to kind of take in what's happening and the characters um do not talk a lot and they're not very expressive in terms of their um, facial expressions or their body language most of the time they're sitting kind of as observers of the train and it was hard for me, I guess, to uh, connect because having it used to that long period of silence was uh, was tough. And maybe maybe I just need to watch this movie a couple times to understand it. But because there was no kind of subtext or sort of any type of um, thing conveyed in that silence at least among the two characters it was hard to it was hard to connect at least with with the with the story for what it was i think part of that probably comes from the fact that most of the like the original book is told like all from giovanni's perspective and you get a lot of his internal monologues which are really not well conveyed in the movie necessarily and also just like by the nature of the plot and like what happens and like the actions that are taken by other characters or by our main characters like it seems like for the most part like the actual journey on the train is more so like them seeing things and things happening to them or around them rather than our two main characters actually doing anything which i think is is uh it's interesting from a story perspective to mostly in the book, like just hear what Giovanni thinks about all the things that are going on around him. And, you know, to an extent, you know, in his conversations with Campanella, they do sort of talk about like how they feel about certain things that are happening or, you know, uh, their reactions to, um, you know, what they see and the people they talk to, but like, they don't really do much. So it kind of makes for a, like a like a not like a not very action oriented 
film and i don't mean action as in like fighting or whatever but like just they don't really do much yeah and we're not we're given hints of their relationship but nothing really strong to to hold on to like there's no flashbacks that shows their relationship Mm -hmm. there's kind of some subtle glances at each other at the beginning and then what uh says to his mother at the beginning of the movie giovanni sorry yeah giovanni and then kind of his giovanni's speech at the end but that's basically it yeah and it's funny that you said giovanni's speech at the end because that was pretty much added as like a movie like a movie thing like a unique movie thing like doesn't he like sort of reflect on like oh spoiler warning like losing campanella yeah basically and at the end of the movie it's revealed that campanella died saving one of the classmates that teases uh teases our main character Mm -hmm. all the time and basically he makes this declarative statement of i i will never forget our time together and our journey that we went on and it will always hold on to my heart See, I, I, I'm not sure. I kind of feel torn about it because I guess in a way I'll play devil's advocate about the, um, I think what the sort of the silence and the eeriness and the lack of action on the part of our main characters kind of does serve in a positive way is it gives you this ethereal dreamlike quality where mm. you don't, you can never really predict what's going to happen next to them as they go on this train and a lot of the things that do happen are just very bizarre. Um, like they meet, uh, like they basically get off the train on a stop and like meet a, uh, like a, uh, an archaeologist, like digging up this really big, like beasts, skeleton, like corpse skeleton. And they talk to him for a while. And then they meet like the bird catcher who's like catching herons out in space. And, they talk to the um what is it like the uh communications guy like the morse code or the um, who who cannot see yeah he's blind uh, he's who uses a cane to uh walk across the ship or the train and they meet like a group of uh people who are on the titanic which is really interesting (laughs) and kind of random um, yeah, where that that whole section is kind of it seems like the movie and the author's kind of commentary on the afterlife and and death. Well, I think that's the whole movie, pretty much in a in a in a big way. I think it goes that way, especially towards the end. At the beginning, mm-hmm. it's more of a just a um, whimsical kind of imaginative journey, but when we get into like the final third, 
it very much gets into kind of examining what is death and how you take that as a person. And I'm not going to be a huge stickler on this necessarily because I know it was like a, you know, an early 20s sort of work of science, science fiction, I guess, science fantasy. But the rules of the train and the rules of kind of what we're seeing in front of us, they don't make a whole lot of sense because like later on we learn that at the very beginning, whenever Giovanni and Campanella both get on the train, that like at that point... Campanella had already died because you know whenever they sit down and talk to each other for the first time Giovanni remarks it says oh your jacket is wet like it looks like there's dew on it and we're supposed to think later on and this isn't something I picked up the first time I picked this up like the second or third time I watched the movie um, that's supposed to indicate that he had already drowned trying to rescue um, Zanelli um, mm. but like if that's the case, why isn't Giov like how did Giovanni end up on the train if he's not dead? So I, I, I but I, I don't, know. don't I don't think that matters. You don't um, think it matters? Like, in terms of like what you're saying about like the rules of the train. No. And I, I that agree. Stuff, that stuff like I don't think that matters. I think it's more this is very much an atmospheric piece mm -hmm. and it's also um, examining themes and motifs. Yeah, that's what this that's what this movie is doing, and I think maybe on more viewings I will appreciate that more. Mm -hmm. But since I kind of went in cold, it was it was a bit hard because this movie is pretty long, mm -hmm. and so I I kind of feel each chapter in this movie is kind of like its own little mini story. Mm -hmm. I, I think if I watched this piecemeal, then I probably would appreciate it more. Because there's not a real continuation between parts. Like the part with the fishermen catching the herons is its own section. Or the part with the archaeologist dealing with the giant space monster. That's its own thing. Mm -hmm. And I think I maybe I would appreciate it more if I kind of treated it more like an episodic uh work right right I, I could see that for sure and it, it it i mean it was written with distinct chapters so that was probably very intentional and it's a bit like it's a bit like the wizard of oz or alice in wonderland where like each section is like our main characters interacting with other strange and bizarre sites and people uh mm -hmm. so it, it does kind of call back to that and um, I think that this the, the idea of a train through the stars is something that like would really inspire Leiji Matsumoto later on for Galaxy Express 39. And I think in terms of like a entertaining story, he's able to take this concept and really run with it because he comes up with this whole like intergalactic con uh, context for the, the train and the people on it and where the characters go and everything. But but I, I guess I guess we're kind of missing the point a little bit because I don't really think Night on the Galactic Railroad is really about that so much in that it's more so about like Miyazawa processing like the death of his sister mm -hmm. through the relationship of 
Giovanni and Campanella. Um, because a few years before he wrote the story, he did lose his sister to um, like pneumonia or tuberculosis or something like that. And this was sort of like a poetic way of him like getting through uh, dealing with He's... those emotions. Yeah, and I think you could definitely see that, especially when we get to the Titanic section mm-hmm. of the piece, where there are two main characters meet. It seems to be like a pastor or some some sort of parental figure and these two children that in are the from book, the book. In the book, he's just like their teacher or their tutor. I think he's like just yeah, just like oh, okay. their tutor or something. And then, uh, they kind of talk about um what they're doing and kind of when they need to get off and as they're talking we see other people basically drowning outside mm-hmm. the train and campanella and giovanni are basically observers yeah and they don't really comment on anything they're just kind of observing what's what's happening and um yeah and just i maybe it's it, that was a major event at the time in terms of like when he wrote the book because that would Mm -hmm. be more recent history so having kind of that level of a traumatic event may be equated to what he felt with the loss of his sister but that's just conjecture by me yeah um no you're probably right i mean it's like the major tragic event that he probably that was probably you know big news everywhere so he just kind of wanted to take that idea and and put it into his story. I think it's like a little bit from what I remember the the kids and the teacher, they all have Japanese names in the mm-hmm. in the book, but it's like very explicitly pitched that oh no, this these are people from the Titanic in the movie. I think in the book they just sort of allude to being on a ship that hit an iceberg and everybody drowned and some people escaped and some didn't. Well, and that sounds silly the, when I say it. But. And in the movie, they look more uh, like a normal or a typical human would look like. They're not yes. cat. They're not cats. Which the um, cats thing, that is an interesting aside that we haven't talked about. Um, hmm. Did you do any reading on where the cats came from? Wasn't it basically like... Um, it was harder to do humans, so... It would be easier in terms of production to do more of a cat design, and also, there the director was not a big fan of cats, so as a joke, they they made them the main characters. Yeah, that's like partially true. Like, well, most of that is like part of it, but like, uh, uh, the manga that I said that was an adaptation of the story from a few years earlier depicted all the characters as cats, uh, mm. in a way that's very similar to what the movie ended up looking like. But they originally weren't going to do that. They wanted to do them as, like, human characters. uh, Because there's nothing in the original story that says, oh, these characters are cats. Absolutely nothing at all. Um, But apparently, throughout production, like, the director and the folks over at GroupTac could not decide on, like, a cohesive design for the human characters. So they were like, well, this manga made them all cats, so let's just make them cats. Hmm. Um so that's kind of how it ended up in the movie, which is really silly. Huh. Uh, you know what? I guess if you're going to steal, if steal from other source material, it makes sense to me. 
So I guess. I mean, I hope they at least credited the the manga author. <laughs> uh, they probably <laughs> did because it was only a few years before. It was like 1982 or something like that. Mm. Um, but gosh, what else to say about this movie? I mean, it seems like generally speaking you kind of vibe with some of the broader themes, but maybe not the movie as a complete piece. And I yeah. can kind of get behind that. Yeah, I think as a complete piece, it's it's a, it's a bit of a hard watch because of one, how long it is. Two, because you're basically a silent observer to what's happening. It's, I, I would get disengaged at times because mm-hmm. while the, while the movie is beautiful to look at, there would be gaps where it's just just dead silence and you're kind of left to your own thoughts. And so I would start to disengage or look at my phone or pause the movie and then go back. And I, I, I admire, I admire this, this movie for its artistic achievement. And I admire kind of the mood and tone it sets because that silence and then mm-hmm. kind of creates an eeriness and a kind of a um, mysteriousness mm-hmm. that I think it's very hard for a lot of movies to convey. So and especially I, with I, all like the, the religious themes in it, like both Christianity and Buddhist as well, it, it does sort of lend this credence to like a very uh, sort of sober like uh like uh pondering like slow examination yeah reverent like uh um what's the word i'm looking for like melancholy i guess yeah which makes sense considering it's ostensibly about grief and death but uh it does it makes for a beautiful movie but not like the most entertaining movie in the world no i would not i this is not a movie you do in a group watch no, don't bring it to movie night. No, don't bring this to movie night. I would not... Unless you know the person you're going to watch it with is um, is is interested, this is very much a movie you probably should just watch by yourself. <laughs> Maybe in, uh, in different... Uh, in uh, multiple settings, perhaps. Uh, I... I... I, or like, don't be, don't be upset if you pause to go get a snack or something. <laughs> I do like snacks. Yeah, but um, no, I, I this this movie is um, from an artistic perspective and just kind of atmosphere is excellent. So mm-hmm. I think you should at least try it. Uh, what I want to ask you is, it, to me, it's hard for me to wrap my head around that this is a children's book. Yeah, because because of the maturity of. The maturity of the themes, like this, this work based off the adaptation, is it doesn't talk down or it comes down to the level of a child. Uh, yeah. At least, at least in the, at least in the last half, like it's very kind of abstract and very. You're having to interpret a lot of what's happening, so it, it's hard for me to wrap my head around it this would be a children's work i mean i don't i'm not the person that ascribes to the idea of like oh children's material can't have complex themes because they won't get it because i think they will 
And I think making the two boys, like, young friends, I think any child can kind of relate to, like, uh, wouldn't you be really sad if you lost your best friend? Like, I think mm-hmm. that that's something that most any kid can relate to. Um, and they also talk a lot, you know, there's there's the whole angle on bullying. There's a whole angle on, like, Giovanni having a sick mother and, like, an absentee father, which we never really know. Because they, they constantly make allusions to, like, uh, well, some of the other kids make fun of Giovanni for his dad being gone because they, like, tease him and say, oh, he got in trouble with the law. He's probably in jail or something like that. And we never really know if that's true or not. We never. We also never really know if he's actually out to sea. All we know is that he has collected artifacts and then given it back to the school. That's right, because the the, the teacher basically talks to Giovanni and tells him about all the cool things his dad brought. Um so I don't know. I mean, I think that there's definitely a lot here that a kid could relate to, but it's also abstracted enough that I don't know if it's if it's clear all the time like what the movie is trying to say. Um and I and I don't I don't mean to say that children's work has to be dumbed down or sim- uh simplistic. Uh I think there's a lot of children's works that are talk about complex themes and stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I I just don't know if a child like if I gave this <laughs> if I gave the book or if I gave this movie to an eight or a ten year old if they would uh, enjoy it. The, <laughs> in, yeah, engage with the work. Yeah, I I guess that's a fair point because it is it's really dour, but um. I don't know maybe maybe this is just something that like is used a lot in schools like it's not for entertainment but it's like a story that kids can relate to that has complex themes that's good for like exploring those complex themes so maybe that's maybe that's typically where the uh sort of the the relationship to you know this being like a children's book maybe that's the angle Maybe I would love to hear from somebody any uh, online that either was taught this book in school and how it was approached or kind of what were the lessons that were supposed to be yeah. kind of gained from this work. If that was um, you, send us your syllabus if you still have it. <laughs> yeah, uh, send us the essay that you had to write about said work. <laughs> I liked the part with the birds. <laughs> they were very pretty. <laughs> that big cross was cool.
I guess the final thing that we can sort of as we end end our conversation on on this movie before talking about two of the other things we checked out um, the music is really interesting like there's not a whole lot of music but like the main theme is very uh, like twinkly and uh, sort of uh, eerie but catchy at the same time I really like that and they use a lot of hymns in it which is interesting like Christian hymns specifically mm-hmm. uh near my god to thee which you probably if, if you don't know that hymn specifically you've probably heard the the tune of it before did the music stand out to you at all bill um to be honest not really like the the main theme that plays at the beginning i remembered but the movie is very sparse with its music it's very atmospheric mm-hmm. from what i remember yeah um and so the music kind of was kind of in the back of my head, but then it would just kind of drift away. So as part of the larger piece of the work. So final takeaway, would you recommend people watching this? And what is what is the scene that stands out in your mind the most? Um, yes, I would give this a recommendation but you have to know what you're in for and uh, know that it's not a strong narrative or action-oriented piece, that it's more of a piece of that's atmospheric and about mood. Um, and my favorite scene probably is the crane sequence, just because them flying and him trying to catch it uh really stuck with me that's Mm. that's one thing i will say is that certain sequences really uh stuck with me with their atmosphere and the visuals i think i could agree with that i would also recommend people check this out but again do not operate heavy machinery while watching this movie and uh (laughs) just know that it 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 feels again it's very ethereal not very plot and sequence driven and is really more of like an experience like a journey you go on with these characters i guess you could make the argument that like you're supposed to be the stand-in for giovanni and i could i could see that interpretation but um it is definitely an interesting movie it is very unlike the Street Fighter 2 movie, <laughs> uh, directed by the same guy. But if you're um, if, if you're broadly interested in, uh, in just the history of anime movies or like, you know, good, well animated stuff with a good distinctive art style, maybe maybe give it a shot. Can I one bonus question? Can yeah. you think of another animated work? that would have a similar kind of focus more on atmosphere and uh, mood than narrative or action. Um, to me, the things that's, that stand out the most are something like Angel's Egg. But I think the great thing about Angel's Egg is that it's shorter. Mm. Um, it's only like 50 minutes. So it, it doesn't really overstay its welcome. And at least to me, like the mystery of Angel's Egg is the point. Yeah, I would have totally agree with that. That's what kind of popped into my head was yeah. Angel's Egg. 
So I guess another contemporary example would be like Children of the Sea, because like similar to Night in the Galactic Railroad, it's kind of like it feels incomplete and Railroad is also somewhat incomplete, but both of them are very much about mood and tone and visuals. Um and I would also recommend watching both of those, but really only if you're interested in like bizarre, surreal, like mood pieces. So that that's another one I would say is like kind of similar. Where's Tobias when you need him? <laughs> I I watched Children of the Sea with Tobias, and he would probably probably say the same thing. <laughs> oh yeah, my final uh, m- most iconic scene. Oh, it's definitely the shot where the train shows up, like over the hill, and like it's huge in the frame coming up over that hill, and Giovanni is teeny tiny. Um, great. Sequence. I love that. I love that because it just shows just the sheer scope of it. Yes. And just the enormity of it is mm-hmm. just uh, really fun and kind of gives it this fantastical um, visual to it of just yeah. something that you wouldn't see in everyday life. Agreed. Agreed. Okay, so I think that pretty much wraps us up talking about Night on the Galactic Railroad, but there are two other things that we wanted to touch on briefly. In 1997, Shoji Kawamori, the creator of Macross, directed a biopic about Kenji Miyazawa called Spring and Chaos, and it's only about like an hour or so long, and it's basically like his his life whenever he was like a young adult up until like towards the end of his life and it was um put out by tokyo pop in the early 2000s and is now unfortunately out of print but i think if i had to sit down and think like which movie i would like to watch more or like has the better story i kind of might pick this one it's it i don't know I'm, i'm having trouble like articulating my thoughts about it but maybe, maybe i'll let you go for it bill maybe you can spark there, some some thoughts there in dif- me. there are different works very and that this is a this i would say spring and chaos is a companion piece to not on the galactic railroad and that um this is this has a stronger narrative but it also still has those kind of fantastical surreal elements to the mm. work um because um, you you kind of as you as you said it's a biopic kind of a semi autobiographical biopic of Kenji Miyazawa's life and how he struggled to fit in like he did not have a good relationship with his father struggled as a teacher struggled as a sharecrop farmer and uh, struggled as a writer as well because struggled 
Yeah. Because they go through him, like, trying to, you know, take off in his literary career and, like, not having much success while he was alive. Yeah, and then you see uh, an equivalent of his sister go through a similar disease of um, tuberculosis where um, she's kind of losing the battle. And kind of his approach to life, which is kind of a, um, I wouldn't say carefree, but a very kind of almost Zen type attitude to life. Like Where, take everything as it comes and try and find the beauty in ordinary situations and um, embrace all that sort of life has to offer. Um, yeah. And you see him have like a specific, like one thing that really stood out was the scenes where he is being a teacher in the classroom and where like he takes his kids out into nature and shows them sort of learning, learning outside, uh, which was apparently a, a big thing that he liked to do that was kind of contrary to a lot of his uh, fellow teachers where he liked to take his kids out of the classroom and go sort of explore the real world and learn that way. Hmm. Yeah. And just kind of just the more on the kind of unorthodox method of his teaching where some students really connected with him and others were, this is weird. I don't get this. Right. And uh, I, th- that's kind of an approach that's kind of uh, viewed by a lot of people where people just kind of viewed him as weird and just kind of living up in the clouds. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, just kind of like you need to kind of be more realistic where I think in the movie um, it conveys that when he realized that something wasn't going to work out, he moved on to something else. And... Uh, tried to go about it in the best possible manner, whether that be in his teaching or later becoming kind of a, a farmer. Yeah. Um, but it, nothing ever really worked out, even though he would try his best. Mm-hmm. Um, and then towards the, kind of the end of the piece, we kind of have a kind of a surreal thing where he's kind of in like a, a fever dream. He's kind of having a fever dream mm-hmm. about, past events and just kind of having kind of a spiritual moment out in the fields while the snow is coming down. There's a lot of fever dream-esque moments in the whole movie. And some of them are done with some very, very rudimentary CGI. <laughs> uh, you know, uh... it's, it's, I, I can't get mad at them for that because probably at the time that was very high-end technology. It's yeah. like... Um, I'm I'm watching uh, a lot of anthology works, and one of them is the Animatrix, and some of the <laughs> CGI used for like a couple of the shorts are just like it's not holding up well today. <laughs> but at the, at the at the time, I could see why people would be very impressed. Yeah, like, I mean, uh, I'm not really so. knocking it necessarily. I'm just pointing it out because it is very very rudimentary. <laughs> Yeah, it looks like something that would be running on your Windows ninety eight computer. Yeah, extremely <laughs> on, on so. A, on like an un, like an Unreal game. Yeah, but uh, even then, to sort of despite that, I think the the, uh, the some of the sequences are very creative and very well executed, um, and uh, yeah, very striking. Yeah, they don't get to the heights 
of nothing look back to Crowbar, but I think they are still well executed. And it does look like there was money put into this kind of OVA. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I think on its own merit, on its own merits, this this uh, OVA movie holds up. Yeah, it's worth checking out. Like if you liked Night on the Galactic Railroad maybe check this one out it can give you like a better insight of like what what was going on in the brain behind the the original author um mm-hmm. but sort of as our last thing going back to um Gisaburo Sugi the director of Galactic Railroad he came back in 2012 to direct another adaptation of a Kenji Miyazawa work which is uh The Life of Budori Gusuko which I saw and promptly forgot almost everything about it <laughs> but Bill, you watched it a little bit more recently, and I think you had a better feeling towards it than I did. So why don't you I, tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I saw uh, Bendori Gusako uh, very recently, and I really enjoyed it. Um, partially because I don't know what they did, but it seems like they stole some, or before he became big, like stole some background artists that would later work with Mikado Shinkai because <laughs> this move this movie is gorgeous to look at, especially mm. its backgrounds. It has a very painterly background style where everything is meticulously detailed. So this this movie is gorgeous to look at. And initially when I watched it it, it almost seemed like a fairy tale because he kind of lives this idyllic childhood with his sister and his mother and father but then a great winter comes and never really leaves and his mother and father disappear into the winter night and then his sister is taken away by kind of an evil warlock uh, wizard which um never to be seen although um it's kind of implied that um that it she she died but i kind of enjoyed the fairy tale aspect of it and then it, the rest of the movie is bendori trying to find his place where at first he's a farmer and then he become he gets into the big city and goes to school and then works for basically the geological survey uh looking at the volcanoes that are around uh, the continent and I think the reason why this movie has kind of been forgotten about is because it has a for how long this movie is the the ending is feels kind of rushed mm. where the narrator kind of wraps it up and so uh, Vandori gave his life in order to stop the cold winter and we're done and I think because there isn't a strong uh, a strong narrative in that um in that it's kind of uh when i say strong and air it's not uh, well there's a problem it's not um very much at the front of your mind because years go on throughout the movie um but i think i just enjoyed the visuals and i enjoyed seeing this person's life as they try and find their sister and try and kind of find their place mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i i think i admired it for that 
and uh again this movie is also just gorgeous to look at yeah i think a lot of uh a lot of what you said i kind of vaguely remember but i'll admit i watched this like a year and a half ago and don't really remember all that much but i do remember the story feeling like very like quickly wrapped up mm-hmm. and there were some things that i I think we're like left uncompleted is what my general feelings were. But no, I can't argue with how beautiful it is. Like it was a really gorgeous film. Yeah. Um, and there, there's, there's surrealist elements, like everything with the kind of the warlock and the, he kind of has there's segments where he kind of goes into kind of another world. Um, that's kind of very weird mm-hmm. and surreal. So there are kind of surrealist moments through throughout this movie, but they're very sparse compared to something like Not in the Galactic Railroad or even Spring and Chaos. I think maybe my problem was I expected too much of this movie and maybe mm-hmm. some of those expectations, I clouded my judgment on it a bit, but, um, but I'm glad you know, that you... But... Go ahead. Sorry. It's kind of funny because it was probably the reverse where maybe my <laughs> expectations for another Glitch Girl was too high. And uh, I went into the spiritual sequel with kind of like, oh, I don't know what to expect, but we'll see. <laughs> so that kind of made me enjoy uh, this movie more. Well, there's the lesson, friends, from this whole episode. Never have any expectations. <laughs> don't don't have too high expectations maybe that's <laughs> or too low or too low yeah. yeah all right well i think that that takes us basically to the end of our episode uh unless there's anything else you wanted to add bill no uh i um as of this recording at least in the united states you can see night on the galactic Railroad on crunchyroll uh, you can also see it on Retro Crush, and you can see the life of Benderoy Gusico on High Dive currently. Yes, you can. And Spring and Chaos is unlicensed, but it's it's on YouTube because I don't think anybody cares. <laughs> the best kind of not caring. Yes. <laughs> All right, Bill. Well, thank you for joining me for yet again a wonderful episode where we talk about anime and all that stuff. Where can people connect with you on social media if they want to bother you about Lupin the Third or One Piece or any of those other lame things that you like? Um, you can find me still on Twitter. The mass migration still hasn't happened yet. Uh, I am on Twitter at wb foreman f-r-e f-o-r-e-m-n with three nines and you'll find me liking and retweeting things occasionally posting very exciting i guess it's like social media exactly i am also still on twitter at bebop shock but i am also on mastodon at mastodon.social slash oh wait no Hold on. You say this kind of weird. Okay. So on Mastodon, I am at BebopShock at Mastodon.social. That's how that works. Okay. We have a podcast page on Mastodon as well, but I haven't really set it up yet. So don't bother following it unless you really want to. But yeah, you can follow me over on Twitter or Mastodon. Either way, whichever flavor you prefer. Um, But yes, thanks again, Bill, for coming on to talk about 
Nine of the Galactic Railroad, and thank you all at home for listening, and we will see you next time.